And welcome, everybody. I'm Robert Polly. It's time for the 7th Avenue Project. Today, pondering the imponderable. It's the deepest and most sublime mystery of all. It's not going to have an answer that dogs and cats can understand. Now, if you are a dog or a cat, please do not get your hackles up, okay? Because the question we're talking about may not have an answer that even we human beings can understand. Though I don't think it hurts to ask, especially if the asker has a gift for unpacking nearly incomprehensible concepts in ways that are lucid and learned and elegant and exciting. To wit, our guest today, the writer Jim Holt. As a critic at large for The New Yorker magazine, Jim has become kind of a go-to guy for the really difficult stuff. He's written about string theory, numerical cognition, time, truth, and bullshit. And in his latest book, he journeys to the very edges of human thought. It's called Why Does the World Exist? An Existential Detective Story. And in it, Jim Holt tries to solve, or at least map out, the enigma of existence itself. Or, as he puts it, how something can come from nothing at all. Jim considers the question from all sorts of angles, scientific, philosophical, theological, and personal, and he enlists the help of some magisterial intellects in fields like physics and metaphysics. The book has been getting uh, quite a bit of attention, which sort of surprised me given the arcane subject matter, but Jim Holt assures me that those of us who like the big questions in science and philosophy have a lot of company out there. Whenever someone writes a book about a really basic metaphysical issue, like look at Stephen Hawking's A Brief History of Time. Uh, that, you know, that, that was one of the great best-selling books of the 20th century, and you know, it still is. People have a real yearning for thinking about uh, their lives and about existence in an abstract way. And you know, if, if it can be done with clarity, if it can be presented to them in a way that's not sort of turgid and opaque, then they, they really respond to it. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, when I said when I was in high school, I went to uh, the library and got a book by Martin Heidegger, who's a German philosopher who flourished in the middle of the 20th century, uh, called An Introduction in Metaphysics, and it began with the question, why is there something rather than nothing at all, which thrilled me. Then the, the next 150 pages of the book was, was <laughs> completely unintelligible to me. It was the worst sort of, you know, noodling. Uh, and um, you know, so that's not the go-to book if you want to uh, penetrate the most sublime mystery of all, the mystery of existence. There's this hope, and I think it uh, springs eternal in um, inquiring adolescence that they will open that book and that it will proceed from that unbelievably difficult question to an answer pretty quickly. And there's, a, I, I think a lot of us went through this process of disillusionment again and again and again. Geez, Heidegger doesn't seem to get very far with it. Uh, goes down, <laughs> down a rabbit hole. <laughs> maybe I'll turn to... Went down many rabbit holes. Maybe, maybe Kant. Maybe Kant knows. The, ir- the weird thing is that the question, why does the universe exist rather than nothing all, wasn't really raised in that form until relatively late in Western thought. It didn't arise until... Uh, the uh, 17th century, when the philosopher Leibniz put it in precisely that form, why is there something rather than nothing? Um, but uh, you know, I, I really think some of the most interesting thinking on the question is, is occurring right now. There's a, uh, a, a you know, and I interviewed a lot of the people who are doing some of the most interesting thinking on the question, and I would cite, for instance, a great philosopher at, uh, at Oxford uh, named Derek Parfit. And it was such a privilege to talk to him, to Steven Weinberg, the great uh, Nobel laureate in physics, who uh, who was known as the father of the standard model of, of particle physics, uh, and uh, theologians, and the late, uh, late novelist John Updike just before he died. And one thing I discovered is that 
William James commenting on the mystery of his existence says, you know, really all of us are beggars here. I mean, it's so deep and so sublime and so remote from, you know, our puny human intelligence that there's a, we all, you know, there's a sort of equality between great thinkers and then just ordinary people like you and me. Uh, and when I would listen to some of these great thinkers think out loud, and I, I wanted to encourage them to be as spontaneous as possible, I would discover that often their thinking wasn't that much, you know, more refined or advanced than my own was. Or, or <laughs> well, than yours well, might well, wait, you are not just some uh, ordinary schlub, though. You're a guy who, you have a Ph.D. in philosophy from Columbia? No, or? no, I... I <laughs> Well, you I attempted have, I, to get I'm one. A, I flunked out of the Ph.D. program in philosophy. I do have, a, you know, I flunked out of the uh, mathematics uh, uh, Ph.D. program, and I also flunked out of an economics Ph.D. program. So I have many ABDs. So, you know, the <laughs> All but thing about life, if you fail at everything else, you can always decline into journalism. <laughs> and I know, you know, enough about a lot of little topics that I can, you know, I, I, can, I can fake it. But I do know I'm pretty serious about mathematics and about science, and I've worked my way through uh, graduate texts in general relativity and in quantum field theory and that sort of thing. And I, all, of my, uh, uh, all of the philosophers at New York University and, and Columbia are friends of mine. And so we, you know, I lead a pretty intense amateur intellectual life. Um, and, um, and I'm a bit of a generalist, so I, you know, I feel I can attack this issue not just from a philosophical point of view, but from, a, from the point of view of a physicist, uh, of, a, uh, of a theologian, of a literary man, a mystic and so forth. So that's right, the great thing right. about being a journalist. You you can continue your liberal arts uh, education uh, long beyond your undergraduate days, all the way to the grave. Well, you've just described uh, my orientation in this radio show as well. Uh, so the book takes the form kind of of a series of uh, of pilgrimages to these wise men around the world, mostly in centers of learning like Oxford. <laughs> mm-hmm. Why are you laughing at Oxford? I wasn't really doing that. I was just, I guess the the whole idea of this quest, the whole idea of getting audiences with these people in, um, you know, rarefied places like the medieval buildings of Oxford, it, it it's kind of quaint in a way, the, the idea that this might actually lead you to the answer. Did you really believe that it would? Yeah, well, actually, I, I was very struck by uh, something I heard the novelist uh, Martin Amos say on, um, on TV um, several years ago. He was being interviewed on the Bill Moores show, and Bill Moore said, now, um, you know, why do you think the universe exists? And Martin Amos said, you know, I'd say we're about five Einsteins away from knowing the answer to that question. I, I think he said, I think we're about five Einsteins away. From- oh, he doesn't quite talk like that. <laughs> I, well, I can almost do a Martin Amos. I, I just had dinner with him the other night. He, he was reading the book and liked it and invited me out to um, East Hampton to have dinner with him and his wife. And it was one of the most thrilling e- evenings of my life. But in any case... Uh, your, you know, your impression wasn't too bad. Well, no, he just uh, he just speaks slowly, deliberately, and perfectly, doesn't he? Uh, yes, and with a, a a slight, what sounds like a slight sneer in his voice. You know, the mm-hmm, first time mm-hmm. I met him at a bar, uh, we were <laughs> discussing um, uh, contemporary American writers, and he and he, I mentioned Jonathan Franzen, and he said, "I don't like him." And I said, uh, "Oh, you didn't like the corrections?" No, I don't like the way he pronounces his name, Franzen. <laughs> That's my best impression of Martin Amos. Anyway, oh, why are we talking about that? Yeah, so Martin Amos said, we're about five Einstein's away from answering this, knowing the answer to this question. I thought, hmm, you know, I am not one of those Einsteins. That's pretty clear. But maybe if I sort of um, cast about and, and, you know, look at what people are thinking about the subject, I can find, you know, two or three quasi-Einsteins and sort of arrange them in the right order. <laughs> and some sort of answer to this 
sublime you know, question might begin to take shape. And I dare say that that's what happened. And by the way, what, one thing that I, I feel very bad about is that all of my interview subjects, all of the people I, I had encounters with are men. And, this is uh, right. That's why I said wise men. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's yeah. So only at the end does a, a strong feminine presence come into the book, and it's actually my mother, um, and um, a, a, a rather sad development at the end of the book, which I won't go into now. But I, I, um, I did. I wanted to talk to Lisa Randall, who's a very brilliant uh, young physicist at Harvard, and and, and a, a very um, uh, good popularizer of uh, physics. Uh, um, she wrote a book called uh, Warped Passages, and then another book, which the title of which is escaping me, and I reviewed it in the New York Times. I think from her point of view, with imperfect tenderness, and I thought maybe she doesn't want to speak to me. You know, you know, as as a, as a, someone who is a, both a book reviewer and uh, the victim of book reviewers, I know that a review can be completely laudatory and just have one minor negative note, and that's enough to really irritate the author. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I was afraid. Anyway, imperfect so, tenderness. I like imperfect that phrase. Tenderness, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. Some of the people you talked to, uh, or, or in this case, uh, thought about talking to, have been on this show. Lisa Randall was on years ago. Uh, Roger Penrose, the physicist, mm. um, and a few others, uh, uh, and, and still others who I'd love to get on the show. But... Jim, let's get into some of the kinds of arguments that you entertain, that you weigh and mm-hmm. discuss in, in yeah. your book. Why don't we start with some of these purely logical arguments, arguments that really make no reference to empirical data, to physics, or anything, that really talk about something coming from nothing as a problem almost of, of pure reason. Yeah, well, the only um, purely logical approach I know to the question is to prove that the idea of absolute nothingness is somehow incoherent. And this was uh, an argument that you, know, you, you see, in, for instance, in the French philosopher uh, Henri Bergson, who said, when I try to imagine nothingness, I can sort of eliminate, I can you know, uh, imagine away all the stars and all the atoms and all the you know, maybe space and time and so forth, but at the end, I'm, st- I'm left with this you know, concept of emptiness, but it still contains myself as an observer. So Bergson concluded that absolute nothingness is, is, is logically impossible. Uh, and that's, that's a terrible argument, it seems to me. And, <laughs> and, you know, if you don't believe that the concept of nothingness is even logically coherent, then the question, why is there something rather than nothing, is a non-starter. There has to be something, because the, 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 the nothingness is self-contradictory. So I, I, don't, I don't buy that. I mean, I, and I went through a lot of trouble to show that, 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 that it, it, it is possible that there, there might have been nothing. There might have been nothing at all. There might have been no stars, no atoms, no galaxies, no life, no consciousness, nothing, no space, no time. I think that's, you know, that's a definite way reality could have turned out. And I think all of the, you know, the, the, the smartest people I talked to agreed with that. Um, now, the only other way, it seems to me, that you can prove that by pure logic that there has to be something rather than nothing is to go back to the, um, the ontological proof for the existence of God, that was uh, framed in the uh, what, the 12th century by um, St. Anselm. Yeah, I and wanted you it, to give us the ontological proof. Yeah, well, it's <laughs> a, yeah, the idea is that essentially that existence is built into the very essence of God. What is God? God is the, is the greatest being that can be imagined. If you imagine the greatest being possible, um, you can ask, does that being exist or not? Well, if the greatest being possible doesn't exist, you could make 
the being even greater by adding existence to 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 the being's qualities. I didn't put that very well. Uh, <laughs> How about this? Go God is the most perfect, greatest being mm-hmm. we can conceive of, and since it's greater to exist than not exist, God must exist. Uh, yeah, very, 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 very nicely put. Very concise. Yes, and that's that's you know Richard Dawkins in his his, his anti-God book dismissed this as a, as a bit of verbal prestidigitation. Um, did I get all the syllables in there? Yeah, you did. You did. Oh, good, you did. Good. Thank you. Yes, trickery, I should say. <laughs> Much easier to say on radio. Um, and, uh, you know, I thought that all of the neo-atheists have, have dismissed this argument and other arguments, other classical arguments for the existence of God, like the cosmological argument, for example, um, without really trying to refute it. And, you know, it's an interesting, pow- powerful argument when you look at it, and it's very hard to put your finger on exactly where the fallacious inference occurs, if anywhere. And Bertrand Russell himself uh, you know, I, I think is arguably the second greatest philosopher of the 20th century, maybe third. Um, he wrestled with this throughout his long, long life. And, you know, when he was a young man, he said, you know, great, Scott, the ontological argument is, is valid. And then um, later in his life, he said, it's not valid. It's very difficult to say what's wrong with it. Anyway, if you believe in the ontological argument, that's a purely logical proof that God exists. And then it, once you've got the existence of God, it's not such a stretch to say, well, you know, God created a universe, and that's why the universe exists. I guess I'm I'm one of those coarse-minded people who fall in with Dawkins on this, and I I don't hold with a lot of what Dawkins says about religion. I do think he he doesn't quite accord religion its full depth and, and character. He reduces it to a kind of pseudoscience and nothing mm-hmm. more. But in this case, it's hard for me to see how this isn't just a parlor game or a word game. Well, I think it, ultimately it, it it is, you know. I think calling it a parlor game is a little harsh, but it's not valid. But the most interesting um, defender of the religious story that, to explain why there's something rather than nothing, why there's a universe rather than nothing at all, was a, was a philosopher of uh, religion and physics at um, Oxford named Richard Swinburne. And he didn't believe the ontological argument was sound. And he actually believed that, uh, that if you're trying to give a scientific explanation for why the, the, the universe exists and why it has this surprisingly orderly form and why it's surprisingly congenial to the emergence of intelligent life, beings like ourselves, you know, why it seems to be fine-tuned. The, you know, the laws of physics contain uh, 17 or 19 um, uh, constants, like the, um, uh, you know, the fine structure constant and constants that you know, give the uh, ratios of masses of particles and the strength of gravitation and the cosmological constant and so forth. And if they weren't all, you know, very, very, very close to their actual values, there would have been no possibility of life. So this is a, you know, this is a, a, a contemporary argument that there must be some designer behind our universe. Right. And so uh, when I went to Oxford and interviewed Richard Swinburne, um, he didn't use any of the classical logical arguments to defend God, the, the, the hypothesis that God existed. He approached it as a, as a, you know, a scientific thinker. He's, you know, very conversant with contemporary physics. He said, you know, we want the simplest hypothesis that explains all of the experience we have of the universe, its existence, its, its orderliness, its, the, the fact that it seems to be fine-tuned for beings such as ourselves. And he decides that the God hypothesis is the simplest hypothesis to explain it all. And, uh, he, um, and then I said, well, why does God exist? And he said, uh, I don't have an answer. You, at some point in any explanation, you, you have to stop. And God, to me, is the, it's the simplest 
stopping point. And, you know, God is, in a sense, contingent. And I thought, could, could, if, if you're right, and God exists and God created the world, could God ever wonder, you know, why do I exist? You know, whence then, then am I? Now, when I hear arguments like the ontological argument, like Swinburne's proof of the existence of God... Um, you know, Swinburne's case is not is only a probabilistic one. Right, it's right, like all right. scientific reasoning, he says, with very high probability, right. I can infer that God exists, because it's the simplest hypothesis that explains everything that we see. Right, right. It's much more modern in that, in that respect. You know, it's really in the, in the sort of mode of, the scientific mode of inductive logic, not in the, you know, the, the, the classical mode of deductive logic. Yeah, good so point. The, the good conclusions point. of inductive logic are not logically certain. They're good point. Probable. Well, well, when I hear these arguments, though, they're, as you say, they're, they're internally self-consistent. They obey the rules of reason and logic. Mm-hmm. But the terms that are thrown into the formula is where I have problems. I mean, this idea of God, okay, I'm just going to toss this thing out as a be-all and end-all, as a kind of deus ex machina, as a final answer, as a brute fact, as a being that's perfect and all-wise and all-powerful. Oh, and it, but worse than that, a being who's perfectly simple. Perfectly which, simple, and yeah, yet which, understands you know, the everything. Theologians will, will tell you that God has a, has a perfectly simple nature, which I've never understood. And, and this is one of the problems I had with Swinburne. He said, God is the simplest hypothesis to explain everything. And I said, well, God, since he knows everything, and he, you know, he, he has to be at least as complicated as the, you know, as the cosmos he created, right? And Swinburne said, no, 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 he's perfectly simple, but, you know, his mind must have a representation of it all. And Swinburne said, no, 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 I, you know, I, he kind of lost me there. Uh, I felt that uh, it was so important to him that God be the simplest hypothesis that he was um, endorsing the old theological idea that God is perfect simplicity, and it, it just doesn't hold water. Here's where I, you know, am similar to Dawkins. I hear these terms, and I think, you're just sticking these nonsense words into perfectly logical-seeming sentences that uh, by turning amorphous concepts into a noun like God or like nothingness, you've given yourself um, the illusion that you're actually solving a problem. So I guess I belong to that group of people that you call rejectionists, um, at least when it comes to these these logical proofs. I mean, these yeah. logical proofs that make no reference to anything scientific, that make no reference to anything observed. But you, you take them more seriously, and I, I, I think um, you wouldn't agree with me there. Uh, I like, I, I, for me, logic is a way of making sure that you're reasoning, that you're, you're, you're not smuggling uh, unstated presuppositions into your reasoning, and that your inferences are correct. And so logic is not uh, an end in itself. It's a tool for clear and valid thinking. I agree with you that a purely logical answer to the mystery of existence would not be satisfying, <laughs> uh, because it would, it would essentially be a way of saying that, that, nothing, that, that absolute nothingness is self-contradictory, and I, I don't believe that's the case. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, I think you could make the same uh, criticism of... Uh, of, of, of quantum field theory. Uh, Lawrence Krauss, in his book, uh, A Universe from Nothing, gives a, an argument that he says, you know, that, that using the, uh, the mathematics of quantum field theory, that nothingness is unstable. If you had a state of nothingness, it's unstable, and it spontaneously gives rise to a little seed of false vacuum, which by 
you know, the uh, uh, mechanisms of uh, chaotic inflation blows up into a universe. Um, is that any less magical than, uh, uh, you know, pulling the, the cosmos out of a logical hat? Right, right, right. Um, and by the way, Lawrence Krauss is a, is a physicist, and, and he's referring to uh, relativistic quantum field theory, which says that even in the absence of stuff as we know it, even in the absence maybe of space and time as we know them, Quantum fluctuations can cause things to burst into existence. Yeah, um, let me ask you something there. Yeah, um, how can does it make any sense to say that space and time come into existence? Isn't coming into existence itself a temporal process? Something that happens in time? There's there's something quite incoherent in the way he's presenting that. Well, there's that problem that you just pointed out, mm-hmm. and there's another problem pointed out, I think, by um, the philosopher slash physicist. Dave Albert, in his review of Lawrence Krauss's book, A Universe from Nothing, in the New York Times, where he said that what Krauss is calling nothing is not nothing. In fact, quantum fields are something, and that is why they can give rise to something else. Right, yes. yes. Uh, so Krauss has explained how something arose from some, some, something else, how the universe <laughs> arose from a, another kind of something. But, uh, and also another criticism that David Albert made of Krauss is that you know, why should these laws take the form that they do? There are many, many logically possible sets of laws that might govern the universe. Steven Weinberg, the, you know, uh, a greater physicist than Krauss, made precisely the same point. He said, even when we do arrive at a final theory of physics, a theory that would unify uh, gravity with the other uh, three forces of nature and would you know, explain what happened before the Big Bang, would explain... How you know perhaps how, how how time itself arose from a more fundamental reality, et cetera, et cetera. Even when we do have a final theory, the final theory won't tell us why the final theory is correct. It can't explain <laughs> itself. So you know both uh, Stephen Weinberg said, said this to me. Also uh, David Deutsch, who's a very interesting and eccentric um, a physicist who does uh, quantum computation uh, at Oxford. Um, you know, so I, I think they all believe that. Uh, that physicists who believe that, uh, like Krauss, who believe that the laws of quantum field theory can dispel all mis- all sense of mystery from existence, are are being naive. Yeah, and, and again, uh, I call myself a rejectionist in part for reasons that both David Deutsch and Steven Weinberg gave to you. David, but, Do- when you say you're a rejectionist, by the way, what you mean is you 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 reject the very question: Why is there a universe rather than nothing at all? You 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 think it has unstated presuppositions that you don't accept, or you don't think it, 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 it even makes any sense. Yeah, I think it includes all kinds of unexamined concepts that themselves yeah. will disappear on close inspection, but also, and maybe this is a misuse of the term rejectionist, because you can never stop asking why. So let me just uh, you know, elaborate on what you just said. David Deutsch said to you, I can't rule out the possibility that there is a foundation for reality, but if there is, the problem of why that's the foundation would still be insoluble. And Steven Weinberg said something, I think, quite interesting. It's part of the human tragedy. We're faced with a mystery we can't understand. And he sees that as a tragedy, this infinite regress. Why, 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 why? Yeah. You know, why is there a God? You know, right. Or why is there a vacuum? Or but why I, are there laws? Weinberg also thinks that our, our, our pursuit of this, you know, our futile pursuit of this you know, <laughs> uh, of explanatory, infinite explanatory chain gives a certain, you know, absurd nobility to human existence, which, which I also find quite touching. But I don't, I don't think that there's, there's um, that explanation uh, 
has to go on forever. There, there might be a final stopping point. And I, aided by you know, far greater thinkers than, you know, than I am, towards the end, I, I, I do point to you know, a, 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 a possible stopping point for explanation where, where there are no loose ends, there are no brute facts. Everything is explained. Now, are you, are you referring to your own theory? It's not my own theory. I'm standing on the shoulders of Derek Parfit, the <laughs> Oxford philosopher I mentioned earlier. And I just sort of, you know, he took it almost all the way there, and I could have punched it into the end zone. <laughs> I know that sounds, that sounds very pompous and grandiose. but no, in, uh, And we've been corresponding, uh, Derek Parfit and I, since then. And uh, uh, he can't find any, any uh, uh, real uh, problem with my logic and kind of likes it. But... Uh, but we'll get to that later on, or perhaps, perhaps never. By the way, this is this is after I've exhausted all other possibilities <laughs> for explaining why there's a cosmos rather than nothing at all. Okay, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. I'll make a deal with you. I want to get to your proof. I want to ask you um, something very difficult, which is to summarize it very, very quickly. But we'll hold off. We'll tantalize the listeners and hold off for a minute longer while Let's we examine... Let's not call it my proof. Let's call it Derek Parfit's proof. Uh, if, if we call it my proof, no one's going to be tantalized. The reason I, I give Derek Parfit all the credit is that he's the first thinker who transformed my way of looking at the mystery of existence. Everyone else was doing it wrong, and he did a, an intellectual pivot, and suddenly it didn't seem hopeless anymore. But, um, yeah, but we'll put that off. So, you know, basically I wanted to try every possible, you know, beginning with the obvious one, beginning and saying that nothingness is logically incoherent, then saying, well, okay, should we try God as the solution? Let's, you know, let the uh, believers in God give their best argument. That's not quite satisfactory. Let's try some more Rococo possibilities. You know, we mentioned Roger Penrose, uh, Sir Roger Penrose. Well, let's, let's stop right yeah. there. Let's talk okay. about Roger Penrose. Um, he is a mathematical physicist. He is a guy who um, is so strong in mathematics that I've had mathematicians tell me he's really a mathematician. He's one of ours, not a physicist. And I've had physicists tell me, no, he's really a physicist. In either case, he's, he's extraordinarily accomplished. Uh, in and he, by, he, by the way, he, you know, physics and mathematics had really drifted apart in the, uh, after the Second World War. And in the 1960s, it was really Penrose who brought the two fields back together again. And Penrose started using the most advanced contemporary mathematics in physics. And physicists had really stopped learning new mathematics after the uh, revolutions of um, uh, quantum theory and um, general relativity earlier in the 20th century. So he gets a lot of credit for bringing uh, physics and mathematics back together. Right, and he's made big contributions to general relativity. And thinks he's also uh, <laughs> explained how consciousness arises from matter in, uh, in a couple of books called uh, the uh, what is it the Emperor's New Mind, right. which he wrote in the nineties, and then um, Shadows of the Mind. Very interesting, very speculative book. Very speculative, very. Um, but he's not afraid to go there, and he's not afraid to embrace what some people think of as almost quasi mystical uh, thinking in relation to the reality of mathematics i.e. Platonism, or do you pronounce it Platonism? I say Platonism. Okay, I just said it the right way then, uh, although I've been known to say Platonism. But the idea that, you know, as you explore mathematics, it really feels as though you're discovering things in a world out there and not just inspecting your own mind and inventing things. And I think a, a lot of mathematicians uh, would agree with that. And therefore, isn't mathematics real in some sense? I mean, it's not physically palpable, but it exists 
as surely as the physical world, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's what that's what Plato believed in the um, in the Republic. There's a uh, segment where he basically says that look, when we talk about geometers, talk about perfect, talk about circles and infinite lines and so forth, these exist nowhere in reality. So they must exist in the uh, abstract world of forms. They must be eternal, and we somehow our minds make contact with this eternal transcendental realm of mathematical ideas. And this is very much what what Sir Roger Penrose believes. And by the way, it's, it's very much what um, most of the great mathematicians live today believe. Um, and some of them will actually say, yes, I'm making, I'm communing with, uh, with an abstract world that transcends the world of space-time, and it's eternal, and it's perfect. And uh, others will, you know, don't talk about it too much. But if you ask them, you know, are you inventing these mathematical entities or you're discovering them. So of course I'm discovering them. They're, mm-hmm. they're out there. It's like, like the, you know, the, the, the stars and the galaxies. Um, and if you ask them how, how they derive knowledge of them, you know, what, do they have some sort of extra sensory perception? Then they get a little vague on that. But um, if you name you know, the, the you know, half dozen greatest mathematicians alive today, three of the six have, have made statements that sound like they've been eating lotus leaves. Yes, I, you know, it's real, it's out there, and I'm communing with it, and I don't know how I do it. Well, what's the uh, alternative, Jim? What's the alternative? I mean, uh, the alternative would be that it's completely subjective, that it's an invention uh, of our mind? Uh, well, basically, well, the, I think the, the, the correct view, uh, it's much less exciting, is that mathematicians um, come up with... Um, assumptions that they call axioms, and then they, they derive the logical uh, consequences from these uh, assumptions, from these axioms. And basically what they're proving are a lot of uh, propositions of, of the form if-then. You know, if such and such uh, has, um, a, a, you know, if, 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 if you have a set that is uh, structured like, a, like an algebraic group, then it will have these properties. Now, there's nothing in the, in the uh, physical world that meets these assumptions Exactly, but it, it, it's basically it's all hypothetical reasoning. Uh, I believe, and I, that's that, that's called formalism. Uh, and uh, there, 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 there are lots of you know the philosophy of mathematics is a really rich intellectual field and very difficult. Um, but if anything is clear, it's that Platonism can't be right. The idea that there is a transcendent realm of mathematical entities that can't be right because how do our brains make contact? How do you know, our brains are part of the physical world? And if mathematical ideas aren't part of the physical world, how do we have knowledge of them? And, and, and I actually I asked Sir Roger this, and he says, you know, I don't really know why philosophers are, are so bothered with that problem. Um, <laughs> you know, if you, if you claim knowledge of, of something, you have to explain, you know, how you have knowledge of it. Otherwise, you're just a, you know, you're a mystic. And I, I don't mean to cast but, 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 a mystic but, here. But, 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 uh, but explaining how we have knowledge of anything is very, very difficult. Explaining no, how I we... mean, I have knowledge. I can see that my dog is sleeping on the pillow over there because there's a, uh, um, there are causal physical processes that, uh, that are mediating between my brain and the, you know, the physical reality of my dog over on the pillow there. And, uh, you know, I can give you a crude story of how I, I perceive their, you know, photons uh, uh, bouncing off But that's my not dog knowledge, being... Jim. That's not knowledge. That's, that's, you know, that's just matter interacting, matter and energy. Uh, knowledge, awareness, uh, understanding, consciousness. There, I said it, consciousness. Mm-hmm. These are big mysteries. Uh, yeah, okay. I think my consciousness <laughs> is rooted in my brain, and I think my, my brain is a physical system, is interacting with my dog over there sleeping on the, on the pillow, which is another physical system. I think, you know, you can at least begin to tell a story of how we have knowledge 
of what we call the empirical world. But of ourselves? But, but, but you, you can't begin to tell a story uh, uh, as to how we have knowledge of an eternal, transcendent, abstract realm of the kind that Plato and Sir Roger Penrose are talking about. But um, let's give Sir Roger Penrose's Platonism. I mean, it's, it seems crazy to me, but he's you know, far more brilliant than we are, and lots of other mathematicians believe in it. Now, he thinks if mathematical entities exist, that explains the existence of the world, because the eternal platonic forms of mathematics create the physical world. The physical world uh, gives rise to biological beings like us, uh, we're part of the physical world, and that also gives rise to consciousness, which is which is the third world, the world of 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 of, uh, of conscious ideas, the world of conscious experience, and consciousness in turn gives rise to the mathematical world. You have these three worlds: the, the mathematical world, the physical world, and the world of consciousness, and each one kind of gives rise or causes the other, and you get a nice little um, loop ontological loop, we might call it. And, um, you know, I, I was really enthralled when, when I was with Penrose. He's such a, uh, uh, an arresting and mesmeric figure that I, I almost bought into this. And it was only when I left, the, he, he was visiting New York, and I was visiting him in the penthouse apartment of a, uh, a building that New York University owns. And I, I walked out of the uh, building, still in the grip of this platonic fantasy, and then I walked through Washington Square Park, which is one of the most vibrant physical spaces in all of uh, New York and all of the United States. And I was just sort of assaulted by the crazy contingency and, and colorfulness and the weird smells and sights and sounds of existence. And I thought, this is not, this is not created by mathematics. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, are you still there? Yes. I- <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, so, but I, so this is one of the, the, you know, the, the wilder ideas, the wilder explanations as to why there's a cosmos rather than nothing at all, that, that, you know, that, that mathematics did it, that platonic ideas did it. Now, now I, I know that the way you've put it, Roger Penrose's ideas seem maybe at best mystical and at worst just completely goofy. But I want to defend him just a little bit by saying that when you pursue a question like this, deeply. You end up sounding goofy whether you like it or not. Sooner or later you introduce concepts like an omnipotent God or a selection principle that selects among different alternative universes and ultimately prefers one kind of universe over another. Or you start worrying about consciousness and how uh, awareness, consciousness, a mind, how this interacts with the physical universe in such a way that seems so connected and in fact supplies us with the very understanding that we're seeking. You know, So I just want to defend Roger from being a goofball by saying everybody sounds like a goofball yeah, uh, yeah. when they start talking about these things. The uh, late Harvard uh, philosopher uh, Robert uh, Nozick, who wrote the great book uh, Anarchy, Anarchy, State, and Utopia, which was a, sort of a Bible to the Eastern European dissidents during the, during the 80s. Um, anyway, Robert Nozick, who also addressed himself to the question, why is there something rather than nothing, and came up with some very strange answers. Um, he said, you know, look, if you, if you come up with a non-strange answer, you didn't really understand the question. I mean, it's the deepest and most sublime mystery of all. It's not going to have an answer that dogs and cats can understand. Mm-hmm. It's going to be weird. Um, and listen, you know, if you, um, the, the, the best theories of uh, contemporary physics to a non-physicist seem, seem very, very strange. I mean, the, no one really understands... Uh, quantum theory. I mean, everyone can calculate with quantum theory, 
but no one can make any logical sense out of it. You know, the idea is now you know, shut up and calculate. It works really well. So, you know, it, it's, it's all strange. I mean, Bertrand Russell made a very interesting point that um, uh, common sense gives rise to, to science, and science refutes common sense. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, common sense is self-refuting. And you remind me, that shut up and calculate. I can't remember who said that, but it's a great quote. Uh, it's a famous physicist who said it, I believe. Yeah. Uh, was it Feynman? I, I don't know. I, I don't remember. I think, you know, Feynman was a member of the last generation of physicists who cared deeply about coming up with a, uh, you know, about making sense of quantum theory. And now, you know, physicists don't, don't care about it anymore because they're, you know, it's, it's, they, they imbibe it with their mother's milk. It's, it's, it, only philosophers care about that now, I would, pretty much. Well, well, one of my other favorite quotes is one that's ascribed to John von Neumann. Uh, I don't know if he actually said it. And that is, um, when it comes to mathematics, and you could just substitute theoretical physics there, you don't understand it, you just get used to it. And, and, you know, I wonder, though, again, getting back to my complaint that some of these ideas seem to be tossed around all too glibly, whether we just get used to a certain language. I mean, the theologians get, get used to saying God to the point where they can make almost any statement they want to, a statement that seems to a person like me, you know, who's not fluent in that language to be completely bizarre, or maybe ungrounded. Um and philosophers get used to talking about some of these logical arguments. And, of course, physicists get used to talking about things like uh, superposition of states and, and uh, entanglement and even the, the holographic theory. <laughs> I mean, some of our listeners will remember shows we've done that discuss these concepts. But these are amazingly abstruse notions, you know, yeah. that, that defy any kind of uh, ordinary sense. Um, let's get to your and, and Derek Parfit's argument, though. I want to include that. Uh, you had a bit of a revelation after talking to the philosopher Derek Parfit, and uh, you went home and extended his work and came up with your own possible argument for why the universe exists. I think I, w- I would urge, by the way, uh, your listeners to uh, go back and uh, look up the profile of Derek Parfit in The New Yorker. It was written by Larissa McFarker, who's a New Yorker staff writer, appeared about a year ago. And the, he just wrote a, a very important work um, on uh, moral philosophy in two fat volumes, uh, with the title of which is On What Matters, I believe. Um, and uh, brilliant, brilliant work. He's one of the greatest living philosophers. And um, uh, you know, the, why is there something rather than nothing? He's always regarded as the most sublime question of all. But he thinks about it in a completely different way. Everyone tries to uh, approaches it by saying, how could something have arisen from nothing? If you start with nothing, how can you get something? And they try to build, in a sense, a, a conceptual or a logical or a scientific bridge from nothing to something. Which, by the way, contains an assumption mm-hmm. um, that I think was rightly uh, attacked by one of the people you talked to, Adolf Grunbaum, which is the idea that somehow nothing must have been prior. Nothing, nothing is the default state. Nothing, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and Grunbaum, who's a very militant atheist, uh, thinks that that's, sort of a vestige of Judeo-Christian thinking, that it was only with, um, well, the early Christian theologians, the idea that, that God, being omnipotent, he can create the world from absolutely nothing. You know, whereas the Greeks thought of the, the, the state of reality that preexisted the world was a state of chaos, and that, you know, it was somehow shaped into a cosmos. And so he thinks that the idea of, of creation ex nihilo, creation out of nothing, is a specifically one could say, Judeo-Christian notion, and he completely rejects that. And he said, you know, why should nothingness be 
uh, you know, the default option, as you say, or as mm-hmm. you say. Mm-hmm. Now, so, so uh, the, the, the Derek Parfit, well, let me just give, give you his general way of thinking about this. Sure. So short version, there, please. Let, let's look at the short version. Okay. <laughs> let's, let's look at the, all the different possible ways reality might have turned out. The actual universe is clearly one of the ways reality might have turned out. It's the way reality did turn out. You know, we, we, we perhaps don't see very much of reality, but we, you know, we see our universe, and now we, we have an idea that there might be a multiverse, and you know, reality gets bigger and bigger. We, we can at least see a little bit of reality, our universe. And so we know how reality, or at least a part of it, did turn out. But reality could have been very different. Reality could have been nothingness. And that's the simplest way reality could have turned out. Another way reality could have turned out is it could have been the fullest possible reality. It could have encompassed not only the universe we observe, but every possible universe. Uh, Or reality could have turned out to be the ethically best possible reality, uh, or the most beautiful universe. So you look at all the possible ways reality could have turned out. Some of these ways have special features. Nothingness, for example, is the simplest way reality could have turned out. Um, the t- there, there are two operative notions that, that play a role in the uh, argument that there is one and only one explanation for the way reality turned out in the most you know, general possible sense. There are two principles. One is the principle of simplicity, which is a, basically a principle of scientific inquiry. You always go for the simplest hypothesis to explain uh, the data. And the other principle is the principle of fullness, which goes back to Plato, the principle of plenitude. And if you, if you mix these together in the, in the framework that Derek Parfit came up with for understanding how reality turned out, the conclusion you get is that the overwhelmingly probable way the world should be is an infinite mediocrity, kind of an infinite mess with little you know, areas of order and areas of beauty and areas of goodness, and then areas of ugliness, and evil, and, and chaos, and some parts of it seem purposeful, and some parts seem absolutely uh, purposeless, and so, and so forth. And this seems to me to be, you know, pretty much to correspond to the reality that we observe around us, not only the physical reality, not only this, this kind of messy, teeming multiverse that we seem to live in, but also the 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 ethical and aesthetic aspects of reality. I mean, reality is a mixture of good and evil. It's a a mixture of of beauty and ugliness. It's it's infinitely removed from pure nothingness, but it falls infinitely short of everything that that there could be. Um, And so the irony is that when you use a principle of simplicity and a principle of uh, fullness, uh, one a scientific and one a philosophical principle, you end up predicting that reality is going to be neither simple nor perfectly full, but a kind of big, infinite mess. That sounds awfully uh, unpersuasive. <laughs> I thought I would just run it up the flagpole and see if anyone's deluded. <laughs> no, it's actually, um, uh, I'm, I'm not doing justice to Derek Parfit's ideas, and I, I think that even if, even if, if there are some of your listeners who are too benighted to go out and buy my book... <laughs> The, the very least they How should do you. is go to the, Lo- the London Review of Books website. It's lrb.co.uk, where Derek Parfit, about 15 years ago, wrote a pair of essays called Why Anything, Why This? And 
it's 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 sheer poetry. It, it's some of the um, uh, the most impressive and, and and most interestingly speculative philosophical reasoning you're ever going to see in a you know in a in a popular magazine like the London Review of Books. They will have to sign up uh, for a subscription or a free trial subscription in order to get it, but they can do that. Um, so without opening an endless debate, uh, since we have limited time, let me just note some aspects of what you just said about your and Parfit's take on the universe. Um, first of all, it's, it's, it's purely logical. It's nothing about empiricism there. There's no physics in there at all, right? Uh, no. Well, I would say, um, as well, Derek Parfit would say, that when you're looking for uh, the, the, the most general principles that govern the way reality is, it's not clear whether you're, whether you're doing science or philosophy. The, the boundary between the two disciplines blurs. And I would say, um, when, when you're using a principle like the principle of simplicity, always look for the simplest explanation. That's a quasi-scientific uh, principle because it, it, it governs scientific inquiry. Right, right. Okay, uh, fair enough. And also, by the way, I, I would say, in addition, that this you know, quote-unquote proof that reality uh, uh, should take a certain general form, it has actual empirical consequences. And one of the consequences is that reality should be, in some sense, infinite. And if you, you know, think back to you know, 100 years ago, or around 1900, around the turn of the 20th century, uh, most scientists believed that reality was finite. They thought that reality consisted of the Milky Way galaxy sitting in an otherwise empty space-time. And you know, when the astronomers could look out and they would see these little smudgy areas in the Milky Way, they called them nebulae. I thought they were some clouds of gas. Well, some of them were clouds of gas, but a lot of them turned out to be other galaxies. And then we discovered, ah, the Milky Way is not the only galaxy. It's one of 100 billion galaxies in the observable universe. And then it turns out the observable universe is not all there is. We're probably part of a multiverse, and, there, you know, and, and, and it just gets bigger and bigger. So reality is always you know, bigger than you imagine it to be. That's the one thing we've learned from the history of science, that, that whatever our conception of reality is today, 10 years from now, it will be even more encompassing. But it's clearly not everything. I mean, reality seems to be, you know, there are different kinds of elementary particles. There, 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 um, there's consciousness, which might be a distinct su- uh, substance. But reality could be much, much fuller. So, yes, my, you know, the Parfit uh, view implies that reality is infinite, but it falls infinitely uh, short of completeness. Uh, and so that's an actual empirical, and it could be wrong. Well, yeah, and I, I just wanted to also remark that that contained within your statements are a lot of terms that you and Derek Parfit have gotten used to, to use von Neumann's formulation, mm-hmm. that sound kind of foreign and questionable to my ear. Goodness, uh, mediocrity, mm-hmm. evil, you know, those things... Those all fall into your explanation. All I want to point out is that every explanation depends on a variety of terms and a variety of qualities that are themselves taken on faith or taken by custom. Yeah, I mean, basically, your explanation ultimately is going to be in ordinary language, in English. And uh, a term like goodness is highly abstract, but it is tied by our usage to individual specimens of goodness, you know, good things, good actions, and so forth. Um, so, right, I mean, all of this is, it's, it's, it's woolly, the, 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 the edges are blurry, and so forth. But we're just trying to get, you know, some relief from perplexity here. I mean, some 
handle on our astonishment at the you know at the miracle of existence. Right. And, um, you know, we're, we're we're never going to have you know to fit it into an axiomatic framework where every term is you know uh, completely defined. Uh, in, in terms of what sense experience, I mean, <laughs> ultimately, how how does language acquire meaning? Yeah, so I, I totally agree with you. Um, it all sounds very woolly and very metaphysical, but in the book, I try to show how these thinkers who bandy these terms like uh, fullness and simplicity and mediocrity and, and goodness uh, make them as rigorous as they as they can. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and, and, and you know, the, the rigor. The, the the wonderful thing is that. They're made somewhat rigorous, but the, the you know the rigor doesn't get in the way of actually enjoying thinking about the, the subject. I think. Right, right. Well, you know, it's interesting that the very last wise man you consulted was John Updike. Uh, yes. And and John Updike um, was a big influence on you as a writer. Uh, well, you know, he wrote so beautifully. Uh, he wrote too be- beautifully, possibly. I mean, some someone uh, observed that uh, John Updike can never resist the urge to tap dance in prose. But, uh, and uh, and yeah, uh, Martin I, Amos, of whom we were talking earlier, called his prose suspiciously frictionless at mm-hmm. one point. <laughs> but um, it was interesting to end with a novelist. I mean, a very uh, a very smart novelist and a very philosophically oriented novelist, John Updike. But it suggests who actually wrote a novel that dealt with this specific question. It's called Roger's Version, mm-hmm. written in uh, 1986, and I think it's one of the very best of. Uh, Updike's novels, and I know that uh, Martin Amos um, agrees with me. And towards the end, in the context of a cocktail party, he has one of the characters give about a you know a five-page dazzling explanation of how something could have arisen from nothing in purely scientific terms, which Updike himself did not believe in. Updike was a was a was a in some sense a religious believer, and he finally left with the idea that God. Created the world out of boredom as a you know almost as a bit of light verse to amuse himself. <laughs> yes, uh, which I thought was a lovely conceit. And then, by the way, D- Updike died shortly. Uh, there was a little intimation of mortality at the very end of my um, interview with Updike. He had he had just come in from um, playing uh, kickball with his uh, grandchildren, and he was very winded. And he said, you know, when I when I do that, I, when I get winded like this, I really I feel my age and I feel death approaching. And then, indeed, he was diagnosed with lung cancer shortly thereafter and died. And then, so that's why, you know, death became a kind of a, a, a theme that loomed large toward the end of my book because, you know, the, the mystery of the, co- the existence of the cosmos sort of rhymes with the mystery of personal existence. You know, why does the world exist? Why do I exist within the world? And, and what is this nothingness that we're going to confront at, uh, when we go to the grave? And so that's the you know the what I end the book with. And in you know, fact, when I was writing about the self and the death, uh, the subject of death, uh, uh, very abruptly, my mother was um, was diagnosed with lung cancer, and she died a month and a half later, very unexpectedly. And I was with her, you know, alone, watching her flicker into nothingness, and you know, the self that engendered my being disappearing. And you have a, a beautiful. Uh... And, and very moving chapter about being at your mother's bedside when she died. Um, Jim, I just wanted to say about Updike that in going um, beyond a uh, professional philosopher and professional physicist, the other two categories, to a novelist, it seems to me you do suggest that there are other ways of potentially looking at this question, uh, other ways that maybe don't fit into a world of scientific or philosophical rigor but involve maybe a more lyrical approach. Mm -hmm. Now, when we get to to death, it, it did make me wonder, though, is this question one that 
to a skeptic like me often sounds kind of nonsensical. Mm-hmm. Wait, what are, you, what are you skeptical of? I, I'm skeptical of the idea of nothing being bandied about the way it is in the question. I'm skeptical of the idea that something has to come from nothing as though nothing precedes it. I'm skeptical of all those forms of inquiry that imagine a, a card deck of possibilities and that we were dealt this particular universe and that we could speculate in an almost probabilistic way about what are the chances of this one coming about, which contains all kinds of, to me, completely unfounded ideas about this having been a game of chance or this having been Mm -hmm. a selection process. From what? So, I mean, I could go on and on and on, but all I want to say is it made me wonder, though, you're circling back to death at the end, whether this question really isn't a kind of proxy for a deeper anxiety about death and that we are uh, dressing up, you know, some deeper fear in in philosophical terms. Yeah, I mean, you... you you think that if you, I mean, if, if the world exists for no reason at all, if it's just absurd, just a brute fact, then existence does seem to have a sort of awful precariousness to it. I mean, if it, if it, if it just happens to exist, it could wink out of existence equally with no reason. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, that very much rhymes with human existence. I mean, the idea that there's this long period of nothingness, and then your consciousness suddenly comes into being when you're, you know, born or, you know, 18 months after you're born. And then you live for a few decades, and then it's nothingness again. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that makes me very anxious. Uh, and I think um, there are all, all kinds of uh, secular possibilities for immortality, for eternal existence. Uh, you don't have to be a religious believer there's a guy, actually one of the people in my book, John Leslie, who's a, um, a, a philosophical cosmologist who lives in Canada, has a, uh, a wonderful uh, book uh, outlining secular possibilities for immortality. And some of them are kind of like, you know, Einstein's idea that, you know, if you think of space-time as a sort of a single unchanging block, in some sense you'll always exist. Mm-hmm. Even, you know, we won't exist in the, uh, in the 23rd century, you and I, but neither at present do we exist in Brazil, you know, you're in California and I'm in New York. And so, you know, our existence is both limited in space and it's limited in time. Why should we be any more anxious about the possibility that our existence uh, doesn't, isn't, you know, eternal in time than we are about the, the fact that we don't exist everywhere in space and that sort of thing. Um, so, there, you know, there are all kinds of ways of, uh, uh, of seeking intellectual solace in the face of death. And, you know, it, you know, it may be that this project is trying to answer the question, why is there something rather than nothing, is one of them. You know, at least it distracts me for a while from, from thinking about my own imminent personal nothingness. <laughs> uh, why are you laughing at that? I think that's a rather poignant thing. Hey, let me answer that question. The laughter is a sympathetic laughter. It's not a laughing at, okay? Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, and, 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 and laughter is often the human reaction to the, our deepest perplexities. You know, the... Even the question, why is there something rather than nothing, uh, can be made into a joke. Um, there's a, a, a philosopher named Sidney Morganbuster who was at Columbia, who was famous for being famous without actually publishing anything. He was the John Dewey Professor of Philosophy at Columbia, but he was famous for his zingers. And one of them was, you know, a student came up to him and said, Professor Morganbuster, why is there something rather than nothing? And Morganbuster said, oh, even if there was nothing, you still wouldn't be satisfied. <laughs> Uh, and I asked another philosopher at Columbia, Arthur Danto, when right. I first met, I said, uh, uh, Arthur, well, why is there something rather than nothing? He said, who's 
says there's not nothing. <laughs> and indeed, Christopher Hitchens, who uh, just shortly before he died, I, I, I emailed him and said, will you give me a blurb for my book? And he said, you know, sling it over, I'd be proud. And he was in a cancer treatment uh, place in Houston, and he was dead 10 days later. But he, in his email back, he, he sort of, P.S., what makes you so sure there's anything? Love Hitch. Hitch. Yeah, yes. which was really moving. So, and, and that's not quite as absurd or quite as jocular as it sounds, because um, uh, before I began writing this book, I was living in Paris, and uh, I, um, I uh, came home from a reception for uh, Claude Lévi-Strauss, his 90th birthday party, and he was very near death. And Anyway, I came home, and I was watching French television, and there was a chat show with a, a Buddhist monk, a Catholic uh, Benedictine priest, and a, uh, a physicist, and they were discussing the question, why is there something rather than nothing? Pourquoi est-ce qu'il y a plutôt... No, pourquoi est-ce qu'il y a quelque chose plutôt que rien? I'm sorry, my French is terrible. Anyway, and the, and the Buddhist monk was saying, there really is nothing. This, you know, all of existence is just, you know, basically a grand uh, vacuity, and it's our desires that, you know, give it... Uh, a sort of uh, illusory substance, and just, you know, let it go. It's nothingness. And I thought, you know, that's about as good as it gets, I suppose. You're reminding me of an anecdote I heard Gary Snyder tell. Uh, he and a bunch of other environmentalists were at some symposium or some gathering that included a bunch of Buddhist uh, monks, and the environmentalists were all worried about the fate of the planet, and their fears escalated until they were talking about the fate of the universe. And one of the Buddhists said, what's the big deal about the universe? <laughs> That's sheer poetry. No, wait, wait. I, I'm sure it wasn't said that way, and I'm, I'm misremembering his exact words, but the idea that the biggest thing we conceive of is is like nothing, you know? Uh-huh. Um, well, you know, it's interesting that if you add up all of the positive energy uh, that's, lo- that's uh, in the form of radiation or that's locked up in, um, in matter and the stars and, and planets and so forth, it's exactly balanced by the amount of um, negative energy, uh, the negative gravitational energy. So uh, the energy le- uh, ledger, the universe really is a big zero. zero. Yes. And maybe, you know, it says zero in lots of other ways. And, you know, there, there was an interesting image of uh, how do you get something from nothing. Uh, the, a, a British uh, chemist uh, named uh, Peter Atkins, who's a very uh, a militant atheist, he said, you know, you think of zero and you think of it peeling apart into plus one and minus one. Uh, and you think of this happening in time somehow, but I, I mean, I love the idea that that plus one and minus one it really adds up to zero. So um, you know what's keeping them apart? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's our you know the Buddhists would say it's our, our our inability to extinguish our desires, which are not only keeping negative one and plus one apart, but also making us unhappy. Now, now that made me wonder something I often wonder when doing interviews because I do tend to concentrate on the tradition of Western science and Western rationalism, and it almost completely excludes the Eastern, you know, it's a, it's a horrible generalization, but I'm going to call it the Eastern view, which is its own philosophical tradition, which addresses things like nothingness and somethingness in a very different way. Uh, and aside from, you know, the occasional Western philosopher like Schopenhauer, it's mostly ignored. You know? Yeah, and Schopenhauer himself was the first Western thinker to um, import Eastern philosophical ideas. Um, but, the, you know, I wanted to end my quest in Kyoto, Japan. Uh, the Kyoto School of Buddhism has uh, uh, evolved, come up with the most rarefied conception of nothingness. It's so 
sophisticated that it, it makes Heidegger seem like Rush Limbaugh. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's an, and I, I've never been able to understand it. And I thought that would be a beautiful conclusion to the book if I ended up in Kyoto absorbing the Eastern wisdom that the, the Western mind was too coarse to grasp. Um, but unfortunately, I ran out. There are two problems. One is that all of the members of the Kyoto School of Buddhism were dead. Um, oh. they, 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 they basically um, flourished early in the 20th century. The second is that I ran out of travel funds, and Kyoto is very expensive to travel to. Oh, what um, a pity. Yeah, a great pity. It also, and one interesting thing, uh, and one slightly disturbing thing, uh, Martin Heidegger, who was obsessed with the question, why is there something rather than nothing, it was basically uh, a Nazi during the Second World War. And actually, when he was made rector of, I think it was the University of Freiburg, he gave a, um, a speech saying that Adolf Hitler would reacquaint the German people with the nature of being, which is, you know, completely, well, yeah. a bad thing to say. And, and you know, uh, uh, and then the, the, the Kyoto School of Buddhists were, were very... Um, uh, uh, Gave a little, a little too much uh, support to um, to Tojo during the Second World War, and, and and sort of had slightly fascist leanings himself. And I thought, you know, maybe an obsession with this metaphysical question can start you down a sort of ideological slope to some kind of crazy fascism. Um, there was a you know a, a British physicist who just died uh, a few days ago named uh, Bernard Lavelle, uh, who who said in the 1960s that the question, why is there something rather than nothing, this question can tear your mind asunder. Um, and I wondered, you know, in writing this book, I'm going to be living with this question for uh, several years, and is this, you know, good for my mental health? Um, was it? sound unhinged? Was it? Uh, I don't know. You should, I think you should be the judge of that. <laughs> <laughs> One more question about that your book raises. I don't know if it's intentional, Jim. You can tell me if it is. You veer between... You know, moments of extremely abstract reflection and uh, explication, and these very human moments of encounters with people in very particular circumstances, which you describe wonderfully. Um, now, the latter could just be sort of leavening for the story. It's, you know, makes it readable when you talk about what Roger Penrose looked like or what David Deutsch's house was like. Or one could take it more seriously and say, personalities are really part of the story and that that the philosophical work is in some ways related to the personalities. And you almost suggest that with, uh, in the case of John Leslie, who has a kind of sunny philosophy of goodness and who is a kind of optimistic, sunny person himself. I mean, obviously, Western philosophy has str striven for the ultimate abstraction, where the biography of the philosopher, the very physical reality of the philosopher should not matter at all. Mm -hmm. uh, the name of the philosopher shouldn't even matter. It's pure ideas. But really, when you get down to it, don't these things matter? Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's a matter of, um, of uh, temperament, whether you find the question, whether you find the, the, the miracle of existence a miracle, whether you're astonished in the face of, the, uh, of, of being. Uh, yeah. Adolf Grunbaum said, I'm utterly unastonished. I don't <laughs> think there's anything um, miraculous about existence. Um, what could be more natural than, than things existing? And Wittgenstein said, you know, uh, um, it's not how the world is that is mystical, it's that the world exists. And he was, he was um, uh, always in a state of astonishment. Actually, the, the, it was the, the miracle of existence, his astonishment in the face of the existence of the world, that enabled him to, it was one of the three things that enabled him to fix his mind on ethical value. The other two things, by the way, were the experience of guilt and the feeling of being perfectly safe. 
which is psychologically very interesting. Yes, it is. But, you know, and some people think, uh, you know, as you said, John Leslie, the Canadian uh, cosmologist, thinks, the, you know, the world is, you know, basically a place of goodness. I mean, obviously there's evil, but that's inevitable when people are, are conscious and exercise free will. Some will make bad choices. But um, uh, he had, a, you know, the same outlook that the philosopher Spinoza uh, had, uh, that, uh, that the contemplation of the beauty of the world, it's all one infinite substance. You can call it nature or call it God, but it's, it's, a, it's a good thing. Plato felt the same way. Then you've got Woody Allen, who thinks you know, the world is a horrible place of agony and suffering, and it's pointless, and we all go to our death in a meaningless way, and you can get a little bit of satisfaction from, you know, making movies or, or whining the way <laughs> I do, Woody Allen says. And, uh, you know, in Schopenhauer, who says it would have been better if there had been nothing, that the world is suffering because the, the world is being is essentially will, and will is essentially frustrated. It's either doesn't get what it wants, and it's, or, and it's frustrated, or it does get what it wants, and then it's bored. Um, and, you know, my own take, I, I go back and forth, and even the question, why is there something rather than nothing, in one mood can seem to me the deepest and most profound and awesome question of all. And in other moods, it seems empty. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, and I have to say that after, uh, after, after writing, uh, spending uh, several years writing a book about it, at times it did feel, fill me with, uh, with tedium and disgust. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, it struck me while reading your book that uh, really pursuing these questions either involves being kind of monomaniacal and maybe a little disassociated from everyday life, or it involves a kind of doggedness, a kind of um, tenacity to get over those moments when you think, this is ridiculous, this is hopeless, this is fatuous, you know? Yeah. Well, it's not the the reason, I mean, you know, there are fatuous aspects to it, but it does cause you to rethink all of the really interesting, uh, intellectually interesting questions, the deepest questions, you know, the, what, what, is, what is being, is, is, it, is, it, is it matter or is it consciousness? consciousness? How are they related? You know, the, the, the possibility that the world is at its foundation structured mind, yeah. uh, which, yeah. which would, again, which sounds, as so many of these ideas do, uh, when they're briefly uh, uh, alluded to, sounds daft. But, um, you know, science only tells us how, how the world is structured. It doesn't tell us anything about the intrinsic nature of the stuff that is structured. And there have been uh, scientists like Sir Arthur Eddington, who's a great physicist of the um, early 20th century, who said the ultimate stuff of the world is mind stuff. And William James, the American pragmatist, uh, thought that might be true. And, the, and there are philosophers um, uh, at the moment who defend that theory. It's called panpsychism. So anyway... It, it, you know, it makes you think about science. It makes you think about uh, uh, the philosophical matters. It, it forces you to go back and read great novels like Updike's novel, uh, Roger's Version. Uh, and even in Proust, I was rereading Remembrance of Things Past, as we used to call it. Yes. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and, you know, Bergson, the uh, 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 French philosopher, was a contemporary of Proust, and he had raised these issues. And they even seeped into, into Proust's great novel. So uh, you you might say that pursuing a question like this is a form of monomania, but on the other hand, you might say it's a way of intersecting so many interesting intellectual, metaphysical, scientific, philosophical debates. It's a great, great tour, and um, it's fun. That is exactly why I had you on the show. Uh, okay. And I think you proved it. 
Oh, and by the way, um, you know, you said it, it may sound a little weird or, or daft to be talking about uh, mind stuff or consciousness, but, you know, some of the more profound physicists you talk to, like Roger Penrose and David Deutsch, do come back to that. And I, I had a quote here I really like from David Deutsch when talking about the idea of the multiverse, this this larger collection of possible universes out there. Uh, and by the way, we've covered that on a, a very recent show here, uh, the idea that uh, eternal inflation is producing a bunch of universes. Ours That's is just... just one multiverse. There are about, <laughs> there are about 16 different multiverses now. There's a multiverse of multiverses. Okay, great, And, and, great. and, and, and I, when I talk to physicists about this, and they, they disagree over whether multiverse A is the same as multiverse D and so forth, and uh, it, 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 that's that's another you know talk about wild speculative stuff. But anyways, I'm sorry. Continue. But you you pose the question. So back to the multiverse. Where did it come from? Why is there a fabric of reality at all? And um, Deutsch said, I would start with the principle of comprehensibility. Look, there's a quasar out there in space, billions of light years away, and in our brain, there's a model of the quasar, a model that has remarkable properties. There's not just an image of the quasar in our brain. There's a structural model with the same causal and mathematical relationships. So here you have two objects that are physically as dissimilar as they could possibly be, a quasar, which is this black hole with jets, and our brain, which is chemical scum, and yet they embody the same mathematical relationships. Um, in my, my opinion, that, that's, not, that's not an idle fancy there. That's, that's, that's perhaps the deepest question of all. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the idea that the... Reality consists of a lot of elementary particles bumping around, and that over time, some of the bumpings around of these elementary particles, which are in the brains of physicists, actually encode the general principles by which elementary particles bump around. Right. It's, it's, very, it's almost as though physical reality comes to know itself through the medium of our brains, but our brains are just more elementary particles bumping around. But somehow they, you know, Steven Weinberg's brain uh, has a representation of the principles by that govern how elementary particles bump around, and I—that's you know—that's sort of what De Deutsch was talking about, put in slightly mm -hmm. different terms, mm -hmm. and uh, it's uh, it's um, it's something to contemplate. Maybe your next book, maybe. No, no, no. The next book is um, free will, weakness of will, and what is the self. Oh my goodness. Well, no, I mean that's self-help. I mean, are you are you in command of your destiny? I thought I was, but it turned out I'm not. Is that your conclusion? No. <laughs> <laughs> Jim, uh, it has been fun. It has been uh, an adventure talking to you, really. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. I'm sorry you end up as a rejectionist after all of my attempts to persuade you that uh, you shouldn't be. Well, let, let me try for a different term. I'm still dubious that this thing can be put as a question that could then be summarily answered. But... I definitely don't reject the pursuit of the answer, and I don't reject the kind of uh, expedition you went on, because I enjoyed every moment of oh. it. I wonder what a nice thing to say. <laughs> My dear fellow, I'm touched. <laughs> Jim Holt's latest book is Why Does the World Exist? An Existential Detective Story. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. I'm your host, Robert Polly, and I will be back next week. You can always check out past shows, listen to audio, and learn more at our website, 7thAvenueProject.com.
minus is too low to see. 